You're listening to Vexed, a program on the Ephesus School Network. I'm Andrea Backus, your curator through biblical literature and its world and culture. Just as a museum curator selects, acquires, cares for, repairs objects, and discovers frauds and counterfeits, I'll be sifting through our world and culture for examples to help us better understand the biblical text. In today's episode, we continue our discussion of reasons why translators make errors, with two more reasons. Reason number three for why translators make errors. Because of their point of view about the biblical text, you might call it a mindset problem. American literary critic Harold Bloom, considered by many to be the foremost literary critic of the 20th century, refers to this point of view as conditioning. Presumably, in speaking about the Bible, he wrote, Quote, learning from scholars, whether Christian or Jewish, one still questions their conditioning, which too frequently overdetermines their presentation. Unquote. We, scholars and non scholars alike, are conditioned, primed in a particular way. We carry around a point of view and then automatically apply this to our reading of the text. Translators do the same. What is this point of view of which I speak? In a nutshell, it is a philosophical mindset. Translators do not approach the text as a story. They do not submit to the story that is the biblical text, to the literature. And this is a fundamental misunderstanding. If you have a philosophical mindset, and everyone does, then you will not hear the story. You will hear your own philosophy or mindset reflected back at you. It's a blind spot, and we all have it. We ask existential questions of a text which is a work of literature. Literature is storytelling and writing. Translators force their philosophical mindset onto the text, and you can tell by their translation choices. We will review specific examples in our next episode. But for now, let us say that we, both translators and casual readers alike, go behind, around, and above the text rather then read, and better yet, hear, the story as it stands. We impose ourselves, and you can tell that we do that 
by the questions we ask of the text. Consider what's called the Adam and Eve story. We read of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, and then we ponder it. We wonder what it says about gender or the battle of the sexes. We are interested in the psychology of it. Has Eve been unfairly maligned? There are whole courses and books written about the fall of Adam and ourselves. We speak about Adam's fallenness and turn it into, transform it, into a discussion about man and his fallen state, his spiritual separation from God. We create whole subject matters from a few verses of the text because we want to talk about ourselves. But these questions, these subject matters that we create, are questions of philosophy, maybe anthropology. But the biblical text is silent on these matters. The biblical story from A to Z does not speak in philosophical language. It is, via its story, a persistent critique of man and his questions and his need to dialogue and have his say. This is a very difficult problem of point of view when it comes to reading and hearing the literature that is the biblical text. We have our fixations, and we wield them in the way we massacre the text. Even the great Leo Tolstoy, the 19th century Russian novelist who wrote some of the world's best literature, considered a master of the craft, was not above imposing himself on the biblical text. Tolstoy didn't have much patience for the Bible. He was interested in Christ's teaching and in the spiritual life. It was his opinion that the gospel narratives were full of details that he felt were irrelevant. The passages in the gospels which tell of Christ's birth and the miracles he performed were, according to Tolstoy, extraneous. They added nothing to Christ's teaching, and as such, they complicated the exposition. So he decided to craft his own narrative. He took the four Gospels, isolated what he decided were Christ's teachings, and gathered them into 12 chapters. The product of this effort is his book entitled The Gospel in Brief. In the prologue, Tolstoy explains his reasons for taking on this endeavor. He was looking for something, some meaning in his life, and he found it in the life of Christ. He writes of his examination of Christianity and his philosophy about God and man and the spiritual life. Now, I think we can all agree that Tolstoy was no dummy, and yet it's not his smarts that are at issue here. Although I do find it a bit ironic that he was a novelist who intimately understood story and, in fact, wrote some of the most memorable stories in recent history. He even wrote fables and fairy tales for children. And yet, he did not have the ears, so to speak, for the story that is biblical literature. The point is, no matter who you are, you could be the mightiest writer, a luminary of the caliber of Mr. Tolstoy, 
and your mindset, your concerns, your questions will color the way you read the Bible. Let us turn to another example of this mindset problem. Let's call it a bias, having a presupposition which is then imposed on the biblical text. As I was doing my research, I happened on an October 14, 2011 Huffington Post blog entry by Dr. Joel Hoffman, entitled, Five Ways Your Bible Translation Distorts the Original Meaning of the Text. Dr. Hoffman is a teacher and scholar of Biblical Hebrew, with a focus on the matter of translations of the Bible, and his work is well known. In this blog post, he writes about how translations of the Bible can be misleading, and naturally I agree. As I read the post, I came to a place in his writing where he makes a particular comment. It is bracketed off from the rest of the sentence in parentheses, the way we do when we want the reader to know a detail. But this detail is not central enough to be included in the sentence. It's an aside. And this aside has helped me to both understand and explain this mindset issue. He writes that modern translations misunderstand how to translate metaphors, like God's hand, and then In parentheses, he adds, God doesn't literally have a hand. This aside, this almost throwaway comment, is to me the most telling and significant of the whole piece in that it reveals his philosophical assumption. Once again, so not to confuse you, I am pointing out and discussing his parenthetical comment He writes that God doesn't literally have a hand. In his mind or philosophical understanding, God exists in some form, and in that understanding, God doesn't have a hand. But in the Bible, in the text, in the literature that is the Bible, God certainly has a hand. He has hands and arms and a nose. Literarily, there is no literal anything. How many times in the biblical text do we hear about God's outstretched arm and his nose, the metaphor for his wrath, so often that they are their own characters in the story? There are many examples, but let us hear just two. Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 8. And the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terribleness and with signs and wonders. And Jeremiah chapter 21 verse 5. And I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm even in anger and in fury and in great wrath. God's hand, his outstretched arm, they express something about God's way of doing things. They are expressions of his power, just as his face, his panim, and his nose, his af, express his judgment and his anger. You cannot dismiss these details. They are expressions chosen by the writer 
to tell his story. And that's the bottom line. To hear the story, you must submit to it on its own terms. It is its own premise. If you don't do that, if you don't submit, and instead approach the text with your philosophical mindset and impose your existential questions onto it, you will not hear the writer's text. You will simply hear your philosophy reflected back at you. This is a major challenge in the work of translation. Reason number four for why translators make errors. Because a translation changes the form of what is written, and the form communicates the meaning. As we have said before, translations, by definition, change the form of what is written, which changes the meaning being expressed. You can't strip away the form without losing something of the content. Form is a thorny problem. Recall that the original biblical manuscripts have neither punctuation nor space between the words. I spoke about this at length in Episode 5 on the medium of the scroll. The early translators imposed punctuation in order to make sense of the text. It is not only the words which communicate, but the form that expresses the content. What do I mean by form? I mean the way that the words are written on the page. Form includes punctuation and word order, the placement of the words, the way the words are organized. Let's first consider punctuation. Punctuation and lack of punctuation influences content. Two sentences comprised of the exact same words can mean two opposite things depending on punctuation. Behold the power of a simple comma. Consider the following two sentences. No more mustard and no comma more mustard. No more mustard means hold the mustard, but no comma more mustard means bring on the mustard. It's impressive. Same words, two opposite meanings. Next, let's consider word order. The way the words are organized on the page influences the content being expressed. An acrostic poem is an example. Let us explore it. An acrostic poem is a poem where the first or last letter of each line spells out a specific word. You have to read those first or last letters vertically on the page in order to perceive that it's a poem. The position of the letters on the page forms a word which expresses the theme of the poem. The form communicates the meaning. Consider the following poem comprised of six sentences. Sunshine warming my toes. Underwater fun with friends. 
making homemade ice cream on the porch. Many long nights catching fireflies. Early morning walks to the creek. Reveling in the freedom of lazy days. The first letter of each sentence spells out the word summer, which is the theme of the poem. Now, it's only readable if you read it in English, and if you know that the first letter of each sentence, read vertically, forms a word. And that word is the theme of the poem. It's an elegant way to communicate. There are acrostic poems in the Bible. For example, in the Psalms. I was delighted to stumble onto a 2008 article on acrostic poems in the Bible in a journal called Old Testament Essays. The author is biblical scholar Roly Vanderspee. Thank you, Dr. Vanderspee, for your fascinating article and for not blocking it behind a paywall. In his article, Dr. Vanderspee points out that translations do not render the acrostic poems in the Bible, and he argues that they should. He poses the logical question, quote, If this external form does not carry much weight, as suggested by most translations, why did the original authors go through the painstaking process of writing these poems keeping to this structure? Unquote. Exactly my question, too, Doctor. Why, indeed? Dr. Vanderspee explains that there are 11 alphabetic acrostic passages in the Old Testament. Nine of these are in the Psalms. The nine Psalms are 9, 10, 25, 34, 37, 111, 112, 119, and 145. In these Psalms, Each Hebrew consonant letter in the alphabet covers a certain number of verses. For example, in Psalm 145, each letter of the Hebrew alphabet covers one verse. There are many difficulties involved in translating an acrostic poem in Hebrew into another language. He explains some of the particulars of the difficulties in his article. In fact, he has attempted to render the acrostic poem, that is, Psalm 111, into his native language Afrikaans. The point is that translations change the form, and what the author intended can be lost. And the acrostic poems in the Bible are one example. As an aside, because I think it's worth mentioning, in his article, Dr. Vanderspee offers reasons proposed by scholars for the purpose of these acrostic poems. Why did the writer choose to communicate via acrostic poetry? Some scholars argue that the writer's motives were aesthetic. They used the form to create something beautiful. That may be, and there are other reasons proposed. But the reason given that I find most compelling is that poetic form helped the reader memorize the text. Acrostics functioned as mnemonics. The logical order of the first letter of the lines helped the reader to know what was coming next. And this helped prevent mistakes in the reading. It was an aid to memorization and recitation. 
This theory supports my contention that the Bible was written to be read aloud and not intended for the private solo reading that we have today. To wrap up this example, I repeat that the form is not incidental. It actually communicates the meaning of a text, and Dr. Vanderspee expresses this point well in his article. There is another element of form that is extremely important for our discussion, and that is the sound. The sounds of words expresses the content, and the biblical writer employs sound as a means to communicate his text. Sounds can be fashioned into literary devices. With rhyme, we have two or more words that have the same or similar ending sound, and you recognize rhyming words when you hear them. When words whose vowel sounds repeat, it is called assonance, and when words whose consonant sounds repeat, it is called consonance. And again, you recognize them when you hear them. Let us take some time to discuss the importance of sound in language. We take sound for granted in our experience of our own language, our native language. Your native language is the language that you've known from birth, that which you know best. It's not that you necessarily know or can explain how its grammar works. It's that you know it by ear. You know what sounds correct and what does not. We use the sounds of the words to help us write. When you're writing a sentence, don't you stop and ask yourself, does this sound right? In hearing it spoken aloud, does it express what you want to say? Compare the following sentences and listen to how each sentence sounds to your ear. Sentence number one. Being high achievers, college students have a lot of pressure on them. And sentence number two. College students are high achievers and as such are pressured to do well. The first sentence construction sounds awkward to the ear, whereas the second sentence sounds a lot better. A native speaker unconsciously uses sound as a guide in writing. We write from our ear. C.S. Lewis, English writer of the famous Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe children's stories, was keenly aware of this phenomenon and he wrote about it. In a letter of advice to a young writer, he counsels, quote, Always write and read with the ear, not the eye. You should read every sentence you write as if it was being read aloud or spoken. If it does not sound nice, try again. Unquote. Our ears are natural filters when we hear words in our native language. Now let's turn to the Bible. The biblical text is replete with word plays that are only audible in biblical Hebrew. Once you translate them into English, the connections between the words are severed and the meaning is lost. What is wordplay? Wordplay is a literary device 
in which the writer manipulates the sounds and meanings of words with the intent to amuse. They are meant to entertain. And we know this. We have plays on words in English. Let us hear a few so that we can understand what they mean and what they sound like. How about this one? I'm glad I know sign language. It's pretty handy. Now, I know that you don't need me to explain this one to you. It's a pun. You use your hands to sign, and handy means useful or helpful. But it is also a reference to our hands. And how about this next one that makes me laugh? The baker has great buns. Call it double entendre or a pun. We get the message. Let's explore some examples of word plays in the Bible. In Biblical Hebrew, we have root words and other words which are built around that root word so they have a related meaning. When they are used in a sentence or sentences, they play off one another such that to the ear, a part of the storyline is being expressed. You hear the sounds of the words repeated, and thereby you hear the thematic connection. But you can only detect the word plays in Biblical Hebrew. You would not know the word play was there if all you had was the English translation. In the Bible, we find word play from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, we hear the connection between man and the ground. God forms man from the ground, and we hear it in Biblical Hebrew. In chapter 2, verse 7, we hear that God formed Ha-Adam, the man, of the dust of Ha-Adamah, the ground. In the story, Ha-Adam comes from Ha-Adamah. Here we have a repeated root word. This connection between man and the ground as its mother, so to speak, carries through the story, and we hear about this Ha-Adamah, the ground, throughout the rest of Genesis and beyond. In Genesis chapter 3, we meet the snake, who is to tempt Eve. In this chapter, we have a word play on the word Arum. The snake is said to be more Arum, crafty, sly, than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. In the prior verse, the last verse of Genesis chapter 2, we hear that both Adam and Eve are Arumim, naked. Now the plural of Arum, crafty, is Arumim. They are the same word the same consonant letters, so we have a double meaning. We have the snake as crafty and also as naked in the sense that its skin is smooth and slick, without fur or hair. The snake and Adam and Eve share this quality, both naked, both smooth, so to speak. It's a double entendre. Perhaps the snake's smoothness in appearance and smoothness in talk 
combined, explain its seductive power. Father Paul Tarazi discusses this wordplay at length in his book, The Rise of Scripture. At the end of Genesis in chapter 49, we find the word Shebet, which means both tribe and staff. In the Bible, it's the shepherd's staff. In verse 10, we hear about Judah's Shebet, staff. And then in verse 16, we hear that Dan shall judge his people as one of the Shebet, tribes of Israel. We have the same word used differently but connected in meaning. Father Tarazi, in his scholarship, proposes that the paradigm for life championed by the biblical writer is shepherd life, wherein the shepherd leads his flock with his staff. The tribes, Shebet, of Israel are posited as God's flock by God's staff, his Shebet. There are more examples. We have a play on the root gur, from which we have the word ger, which means sojourner, stranger, alien. In Genesis chapter 26, Isaac goes to Abimelech and dwells in gerar. We hear this word gerar over and over in this chapter. Besides these kinds of word plays, there are many more plays on names in the Bible. As I've explained before, names in the Bible have meanings. There are so many of these plays that the topic merits its own episode, so stay tuned for that. Let us turn to another element of form with which translators must contend, and that is the literary device, the metaphor. In the Bible, the metaphors are not interchangeable. They are chosen specifically by the writer to convey a particular content. They have a function in the story the way they are written in their original languages. Let us consider an example from the book of Exodus. In chapter 40, God appears in glory in a cloud. His glory is a cloud. Now, it doesn't seem odd to an English hearer. Maybe it's some reference to God being transcendent, living among the clouds in the heavens. Actually, that's not what's happening here. In the Hebrew, the metaphor is expressing an irony. In the Bible, God's glory cannot be embodied. He is statueless. In order to understand this, we have to understand the culture of the time. Ancient Near Eastern gods, Babylonian, Egyptian, and Greek and Roman gods, were all represented in statues. The basic unit of religion was the temple-palace complex. The king presided at the temple as high priest to offer sacrifices to the gods. The gods resided in the temple. Their glory was in their statue, their physical representation, quite literally, the weightiness, the heaviness of their statues. 
The word for glory in biblical Hebrew is kabod, and it means literally heavy or weighty. The kabod of stone statues of the gods. Their glory was their weight, their imposing physicality in the form of a statue. The gods stood in temples, and this is where they could be found. One would go there to worship them, to pray to them, and to entreat them for favor. Temples are often on a mountain, a high place. Think of the Acropolis in Athens, Greece, which is the mountaintop on which the Parthenon, the temple dedicated to the goddess Athena, was built. Acropolis in Greek means high city. This was the way of life at that time. This was the background culture, the way religious life was expressed. Now let's come back to the Bible. The God whose story we are hearing in Exodus breaks from the traditional ways. He has no statue. We hear in Ezekiel about his ruah, his wind, his breath, what we translate as spirit that can go anywhere and be anywhere at any time. This would have been inconceivable to hearers at that time, an impossibility. And yet, this is what we have in the Bible. God, through the prophet Isaiah, proclaims that his ways are not our ways. The biblical God goes about in an untraditional way. His kabod, his glory, has no weight. It's an oxymoron. His kabod is on a cloud, on a wispy formlessness that is moved around by the wind. It's a clever juxtaposition, a joke even, and a hearer at the time may well have laughed at this depiction. My point is that the metaphors in the Bible, the way they are written, express a meaning. They have a function in the story. God's glory is specifically a cloud because of its properties. A cloud cannot be controlled. It certainly cannot be controlled by man. And it goes where it wills. A translator cannot tamper with that. It's a cloud, not a shoe. A shoe doesn't function like a cloud. If a translator doesn't understand the function of the metaphor and its purpose in the story, they are at risk of disrupting the story as the writer intended it. In our next episode, we will examine specific examples, examples of translation errors, all of which in some way impose on the biblical text. Until next time. This is Vexed. Vexed is a production of the Ephesus School Network.